Go ahead and turn to Romans 5. As you turn there, I kind of want to just frame up our, our time together. We've been in this series called Enjoy, and I, and I had this uh, little fun play on the word enjoy. Uh, I, I don't know if you notice, I don't want to assume any of you are proficient in Spanglish, but uh, N, E-N, in Spanish uh, means in. And uh, joy is the subject of our study. And so uh, together it says in joy. And so uh, uh, that is what our objective reality is. It's funny how we would use the word in 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 a way to greet each other. Like if I said, like, how are you? You would say I'm in a tough spot or I'm in a rut. But brothers and sisters in my old Pentecostal roots, you would ask them, how are you? And they would say, en victoria, which in English means in victory. And I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get it then, and I didn't appreciate it then. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've grown to appreciate such a, a, a saying of, how are you? And it's, I'm in victory. I'm resting and living in the victory of Jesus. And what we've seen in this study over the last two weeks is that if you've placed your faith in Jesus and trust that he says who he is and that he's that what he's done has actually been done for you, then you are in something. You are in joy. Even when you are in something else, you are always in joy. We use the wonderful analogy of two currents in the ocean. It belonged to Spurgeon. On, on the surface is the rolling heaviness of our reality, but under that, inside of us, there is another ocean flowing, another current moving the opposite way. And for us, that is a perpetual state of joy. It is our eternal state. The reason why we were created is to know God and enjoy him forever. He gave us the task of doing something he stirs in us. Joyfulness, joy that cannot be robbed or stolen, joy that cannot be left somewhere, joy that cannot be taken away because it is God given. God has given us a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. God is the object and supplier of our joy and church. We need this reminder. We need it every day that what you have is God's gift to you. It is an inheritance, yours forever. Joy, you are in Joy. And our text this morning will help us see the dynamic relationship of all these different ingredients. And so I've titled this sermon, contrary to what your connect card says, Eternity's Equation. Eternity's Equation. So let's read, let's pray, and let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we look to you this morning knowing in full confidence that there is nothing greater here on earth or in the universe than your word. No person, no idea, no construct, no thing stands next to it by comparison or stands up to it by opposition. You have given us such a great gift. And not only do we have the gift of your word, but you've also given us the gift of your son. And it's his name we seek to make famous this morning. Let the wells of our hearts be filled again with your spirit. In Christ's mighty name, amen. The first verse in chapter 5 is a wonderful declaration. All of its parts are beautiful words to the believer. It is an affirmation of the standing of the Christian, justified, not guilty, at peace with God. But it is also a line in the sand for everything that would come after it. It's as if Paul is saying, look, everything I'm about to say applies to you if. I challenge you now. Put your finger to the test. Put your finger on verse 1. Read it to yourself and ask, does this describe me? What makes this declaration so beautiful? What makes it so beautiful to the ones it applies to is that it's honestly shocking. It's not the outcome any one of us saw coming. Not guilty, the sinner. Not guilty, the guilty. In 2016, there was a documentary that released by ESPN's 30 for 30 crew that had everyone talking. My wife and I could not stop watching it. And we were, we were just gripped by the drama of it. And, and quite honestly, the shock. It happened before, uh, I mean, when it happened, we were children, so we didn't remember anything of it, but it was a documentary that chronicled the rise and fall of O.J. Simpson. Now, I don't know how any of you in this room do not know what happened, but if you don't, in the late 60s and 70s, you could argue that there was uh, not a bigger uh, uh, American sports icon than O.J. Simpson. I mean, everyone liked him, everyone wanted to see him succeed, and he was really really, really good at football. But in 1994, O.J. was arrested and charged with the murders of his ex-wife and her friend. The thing about this case is that everyone, everyone, even you, believed he did it. You could go outside and ask a random stranger with no context at all, did O.J. do it? And they'd be like, yeah. Everything was against him. The evidence was against him. The testimonies didn't line up. All of it. It it looked like a shoe-in. But he was pronounced not guilty. It came as a shock. This is similar 
to what Paul is getting at here. You and I have been found not guilty, but unlike OJ, you and I have went to trial for crimes we have been caught committing, crimes we know that we've done. We have confessed to doing them, and we stand to hear the declaration at peace with God, justified. Oh, what great news. What great news. What news unbelievable to our ears. And what did we do to deserve such a pronouncement over us? Nothing. Nothing. We did nothing to attain the status we have in Christ. Instead, family, something was done to us. Faith was given to us. We received this faith and we believed it. Paul says it's faith that justifies you. Faith in Christ's atoning work. Faith in the power of Christ's death and resurrection to settle your debt. To answer for you the crimes that you committed. Faith that, made, that healed you from the sickness of sin. God no longer sees the dirtiness of your body but sees the perfection of his son over you. Faith did that. Oh, church, did you wake up this morning faithful and faithful? But one could ask, what is faith? Tim Keller says, if at the very least faith is what you trust in, then everyone has faith in something. But is that enough? Is that enough to do all that we just said faith has done for us? Is that enough? Trust in something. I put trust in the batteries on my TV remote to turn the TV on when it's time to watch football. But is that saving faith? No. But Dr. Keller's assessment is not wrong. His point in giving us that assessment is exactly what Paul intends in his declaration of the objective reality of the Christian. It's to draw a line between common faith and saving faith. Every single one of us expresses common faith. You had faith that when you sat in that chair, it would hold you up. You had faith that when you uh, put the key in the car ignition, it would turn on. And that when it turned on, it would bring you here. You had faith in that thing to happen. This is not the faith that Paul is referring to here. See, family, when you give common faith, the job of saving faith, you find that every trial and triumph, every high and every low is incapable of doing its job. Trials do not build you up and triumphs cannot satisfy. You're not hearing me this morning. I thought we were in church. When you give common faith, the job of saving faith. Every trial and triumph cannot do its job. It is incapable. The trials do not build you up and the triumphs cannot satisfy. Family, common faith, everyday faith is centered around us. It's trust in things to do what we need them to do to satisfy our goals or our wants or our desires. At best, what you have is a pseudo holy hoping for the best. At best, what you have is a I think I'll be all right. At best, what you have is a optimism that cannot speak to your soul. It is the foundation of a home built on sand. What common faith builds is a kingdom of self easily crumbled. <laughs> 
easily defeated. If you look at the state of our world today, faith in anything other than Jesus leads to chaos. Look at what faith and ideologies have created. It doesn't take long for us to notice. But to understand saving faith, the writer of Hebrews gives us this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Saving faith, real faith, is a confident assurance in event not yet seen. It is confidence in God and his promises in the scriptures over you. Promises that are active now and soon to come. When you have the faith that Paul is talking about here, when you have faith that justifies you, trials, conflicts, discouragements, disappointments, tough moments, all of that is for something. All of that is meaningful. It is purposeful. All of that is more than what it is on the surface. It is doing something to you. When you have faith that is caught up in the person and work of Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, there's nothing that we experience in this world that is meaningless, purposeless, Saving faith builds you up, not for your own kingdom, but for his. And the first major benefit we see in our text of faith is peace. Active peace, vertically between God and man and horizontally between man and man. See, peace with God means God is no longer at war with you. God is no longer at war with you and you are no longer at war with your neighbor. The peace God provides is different than worldly peace. Worldly peace is dependent on two creatures' ability to reconcile. It takes two efforts, two tests of wills, and it almost never lasts. But godly peace, Jesus' peace that he explains in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, nor let them be afraid. This peace is not worldly peace. It is not dependent on two creatures, rather one creator. It is the reconciliation that the one creator initiates that matters. It doesn't take two efforts to make work, and it is not temporary. You have no need to be troubled or need to be afraid. When God gives you peace with him, what does it matter may come this way? What does it matter what you go through? You have peace with God. This peace makes way for joy. When you are in peace, you are in joy. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there. It does not exist. Family, you cannot have peace without joy. And you cannot have joy without peace. To have truthfully, either of these things is impossible. It does not exist. You may be happy, but not eternally. You may be peaceful, but not at peace with God. Peace with God gives you true, lasting, forever joy. 
But look at verse 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1, right? Verse 2 says, through him, we have also obtained. I love gifts that keep on giving. Don't you? Don't you love lasting gifts? We have also obtained access by faith. So faith has given us peace and given us access to the grace we have now. Highlight this. If you're like a highlighter, right? Like if you like writing in your Bible, that's the point. That's it. This is our objective reality. This is not supposed. This is not guessed at. This is a declarative statement of where you are right now. You are standing. Not where you'll be tomorrow. Not where you'll be one day. No, we have an active God. He does his work now. He's not lazy. You are standing in his grace right now. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice. That word is a, a call to joy. It is an active word. If you have joy, you are rejoicing. Family, this is a glorious staircase we're climbing. The first step was faith. After faith was justification. Justification has brought us peace. And peace, peace brings us access. Access into the grace in which we stand, family. At the foundation of joy is peace. And equally at the root also is grace. Grace is God's riches to us. It is the unsought undeserved, unconditional love of God. It is the unrelenting pursuit of God to pull us out of our sin condition. It is no mystery why the famous greeting and farewell of Paul is grace and peace be with you. It is essentially to call someone to joy. Let me make my case. To stand in grace is to stand in peace. This is our objective reality as believers. If your faith is caught up in Jesus, then what you have is your placement, your standing firmly on peace and grace. And when you have the peace of God mixed with the grace of God, what you have is Mentos dipped in cola. It's an explosion, an uprising. A surge of joy our frame cannot contain. That's joy. Explosive, expressive reaction of God's reconciliation and love. Of justification and adoption. This is what grace and peace mean. Grace and peace we be with you is a reminding of your joy. It's to verbally tell you the recipe of your joy-filled life. It's the instruction to those who do not have such a permanent joy so they may receive such a gift. It's a treasure map. It's a math equation. It's a statement of facts. Grace and peace be with you. Grace and peace are for you. And grace and peace can be had by you in Jesus Christ. 
Oh, church, there is no explosion more sweet to the heart. But our verse does not end there. Our staircase keeps going higher. Peace brings access into the grace. And then comes the joy. Not general joy. A specific joy. Joy and hope. Hope in what? Right? That's the question. Joy and hope. That's cute. What am I hoping in? Hope in what's to come. Hope in the promises of God not yet come true. Do you see the logic, church? Do you see the connection? Faith is trust. Believing. Believing God for the already and not yet. It is the foundation of our joy. And our joy is stirred by our hopefulness. Hope in the not yet. Hope in what's to come. Every day we hope that someday we will behold his glory before our eyes and be glorified with him. Everything that now keeps us from being completely in the image of Jesus will be gone. Gone. Sin, sickness, death, imperfections, gone, done, finished, forever. Family, you have joy now, today, because you experienced grace through faith. You are justified now. You are loved now. You have living, breathing hope now. Teach this to your children. Teach this to your parents. Teach this to your neighbors, to anyone who would listen. You have the gifts of faith, peace, grace, and joy now. Tomorrow, you will still have peace. You will still be loved. And one day, one day, you will see the glory of God. And you will be glorified with Him. So if I can recap. Because of our faith, we have peace. Peace means we have grace. Grace and peace together means we have joy. And because faith gives us access to peace, and not just peace, but hope, it's a logical process. Faith is trust and believing in the now and not yet. Hope is trust that the not yet will come to, come to pass based on the now. And since we have grace and peace together, we have joy. So that what we do with that joy is hope. And in that hope, we rejoice in it. We celebrate it. We talk about it. We long for it. We live in light of it. We rejoice. Active joy in the glory of God. But our staircase keeps climbing. Verse 3. Not only that. Whew, I love that. Paul, Paul, Paul's something else. Man. Paul's something else. I just gave you some dense, robust theology. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame 
Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It would seem natural for us to celebrate, to rejoice in good news. Right? Any one of us would rejoice in a wedding, the birth of a baby, the adoption of a child, the getting of good grades, the graduation. We would rejoice in that. No brainer. It's a good thing. These verses introduce to us something that once again takes supernatural power to carry out. Rejoice in our sufferings. Oh, believers are built different. We rejoice in our sufferings. We have joy in the midst of the worst things. Joy in the midst of the annoying things. Joy in the midst of anything. So for us, suffering has purpose. They have meaning. God allows trial. Allows suffering for your own good. Oh, that doesn't sound unique. Isn't that strange to hear at first? How could you go through the worst season of your life and say out loud, this is good for me? It doesn't make any sense. I can't wait next week. We're going to do James 1. But I'm going to kind of dip into that text for a second. Who says count it all as joy when you meet trials of various kinds? Who says that? What kind of person does that? Having joy in the midst of trials. Is to take what is meant to break you. Is to take what is meant to harm you. And be glad knowing that they can't break you but make you. Oh, this isn't some cliche on a cup. What you go through here has purpose. And that purpose is to give you more of Jesus. To be made more closely into the image of Jesus. Oh, when you have Jesus as the object of your joy to be like him, you got to go through some stuff. And we endure. We endure. We endure failing bodies. We endure sickness. Even death, we endure poverty and financial crisis. We endure infertility and heartbreaks. Because family, though painful as they may be, they produce something in you that nothing else could. My children are going through growing pains. My middle child specifically. He'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, Daddy, my legs hurt. And I have to tell him, the body can't grow without some hurt. God has made it so that you're going to have to go through some pain to be what he made you to be. And that's okay. It's not fun right now, but when, you can, when you're tall enough to climb the top of that tree, you'll be thankful. Family, I know that that isn't comparable. I know that growing pains can't be comparable to whatever it is you're going through. But my Bible does not lie. The greatest comfort I can give to you is this. The Lord loves you so much that he 
wants to make you more and more perfect every day. Be okay knowing that God's ways, his intentions are higher than yours. Trials are meant for our good because they give us more of Christ and more of him. But how, pastor, how? For those who stand in grace, trials produce a redemptive outcome. And our text says endurance. Endurance. The Greek for endurance is hypernome. I believe that's how it's pronounced. I never took Greek. So I had to Google. How do you pronounce this? But hyponome, take it on my word, that's how you say it, can be translated to patience or steadfastness. Keep that thought and think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. To receive endurance from God can only come from his love. Can only come from his love. But also if we endure. We will see our hope complete. Our hope is to be glorified with the father. 2 Timothy 2 says. If we endure. We will also reign with him. So sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. I love this. My how we can use some character today. No. The Greek here means that the endurance has proved the trustworthiness of the person. Apparently, was Christ not patient? Did he not endure faithfully to the end? Was Christ not trustworthy? Was his character not proven? He never sinned. He gave himself up for us. Oh, family, see eternity's equation before you. God allows you suffering just as Christ did so that you can endure to the end just as Christ did so that you can be proven in character, trustworthy just as Christ is so that you can have hope and hope closes the cycle it began. When we have hope in the beginning of this process, by the end of this process, what we have is hard won hope. A mature hope. Hope that has made it through to the end. Can I give you some examples? Abraham had hope. And he was asked to make his sacrifice on Mount Moriah. He still had hope. And after they made their way down from the mountain, his hope was secure. Jacob had been exiled and sent away. He still had hope, though it was little and he slept on a rock as a pillow and the Lord met him there and he canceled, uh, consecrated that place with his rock pillow and his hope was secure. Joseph had hope and he went through more hell than anybody not named Job did. Yet in that dungeon, when the Lord spoke to him and his plan was carried through, Joseph's hope was restored. Moses had hope when the bush spoke to him or else he would have never went. To Egypt, denial after denial, trial after trial, plague after plague, his hope never waved back against the ocean facing the Egyptians. He hoped in the Lord still. And when they crossed over, his hope was secure. Can I keep going? David hoped in the Lord. 
But his songs in the night are so full of despair. Why are you downcast, O my soul? But the Lord assured him, and he endured with singing and dancing, and his hope was secure. Peter had hope. Oh, he loved the Lord. But when trial came, he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And when Jesus resurrected, the angel declared to the woman, go and tell the disciples and who? Peter. Oh, oh, to be mentioned by name. Jesus had a word for Peter and Peter's hope was tested and sure. John the beloved had hope was exiled to the island of Patmos to be alone until he died. Did the Lord exile him from himself, though? No. But instead gave him visions of his return. John saw his hope be completed in the end. And Jesus, Jesus endured the cross, put on our sin, put on our shame. And when they killed him on that day, they didn't realize he was out killing sin and death. For you and for me. He is the object of our joy. He is the supplier of our hope. And he will make sure that it will be done. Because when he said it is finished, it was finished indeed. Atonement, adoption made possible so that glorification may come. Not shame. Why? Because eternity's equation is true. Because blessings are poured out in bitter cups. You have hope in Jesus. And I have to tell you, if you haven't placed your faith in the risen King Jesus, friend, I tell you now, this is for you this morning. This is for you. You and I are in need of saving. Saving from our sins. We are the ungodly. We are the wicked ones. But God loves us still. You have heard all of that. Everything I just said. You heard it all. So that he can open the door to his house to you. And invite you to take up residence in his home. He wants you. And wants to fill you with more of himself. And you're going to go through things in this life. You are. But without joy, without hope, they are just things. Just things. All that will happen if you don't take Jesus is you'll go to the grave with a few more life lessons. But with Jesus, oh, with Jesus, the sufferings of today are your strength for tomorrow. Because God loves you so. Nothing you will go through hasn't already ran through his mighty thoughts. You are safe in him. Repent for your sin. Turn away. Run and cling to Jesus. Can I read on to your hearing as I close verse 8? Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us.